0: Let's hear the story of Christmas once again. This is from Matthew's account, beginning chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and impress upon our hearts the unbelievable magnitude and significance of these very truths. And may it change us from the inside out. Open up our eyes, our ears. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work here in our midst. We ask for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the outline in your bulletin this morning is very simple. I'm actually not going to follow it. That's why I did this for Linda Harrison. Where's Linda this morning? She loves outlines, so there it is. But by Sunday, I've abandoned it. But <clears throat> here's the outline God broke in, He broke into time, space, and history as Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, Joseph wants to break out. He wants to divorce Mary. This is, when he finds out this truth, he has three options. He can make this a public offense, and according to Deuteronomy 22, the sin of fornication was punishable by death. He didn't want to do that option. Option three was to marry her anyway, and he was a just man, a righteous man, and so he went with option, the option of, I will divorce her quietly, protect my name, but not bring in shame on hers. Well, as he's wanting to break out, there's an intervention that happens. And the angel of the Lord intervenes through a dream at the end of verse 20. And in verse 21, we get the explanation from the angel that convinces Joseph to stick with his marriage to Mary. There's your outline. What I want to bring out are ten reasons why this is unbelievably important to us. This old, old story. Things we just read over and take for granted. Jesus Christ was born. That's point one. Verse 18 just simply says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Jesus Christ was born. Just let that sink in. Tim Keller put it like this. He says, God punched a hole with an omnipotent fist in the ceiling of history. The ideal became real. The impossible became possible. The supernatural became natural. The metaphysical became physical. More than that, the powerful became powerless. The invulnerable became vulnerable. The unapproachable became huggable. The immense became a single cell. These, all these things, they, they rip apart our brains because we can't fathom How the God who created the universe and upholds it by the word of his power, the one that we're told that the word was with God and the word was God, and without him, nothing was made that's been made, and yet He's all of a sudden is made, and now the word becomes flesh. Spurgeon said, there's the finite and the infinite, the mortal and the immortal, corruption and incorruption, the manhood and the Godhead, time married to eternity, God linked with a creature, the infinity of the august mate, maker comes to tabernacle and the speck of earth, the vast unbounded one whom earth could not hold and the heavens cannot contain lying in his mother's arms, he who fastened the pillars of the universe and riveted the nails of creation hanging on a mortal breast, depending on a creature for nourishment. You see, prior to Jesus Christ, God delivered and saved his people through prophets like Moses and Elijah and Elisha. And then he used judges like Samson and Gideon and Deborah, and he even used kings like David and Hezekiah to save his people, and even sometimes through angels' direct intervention like the killing of Sennacherib's army, 185,000 are struck down in the middle of the night. God can do that. He also killed the firstborn in the last plague by the angel of the Lord passing over to save his people. But God never stooped in this way. He stooped deeper because the problem wasn't just all around us or outside of us. The problem was all around inside of us. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus wasn't born into a perfect world, this is number two, or placed in an unfallen world like Adam was. Adam was our first representative, and he represented all mankind. Verse 18 of Matthew 1 follows on the first 17 verses, which is a genealogy, and it's the lineage of Jesus' family tree, and it is a sinful, contaminated, polluted well that's in need of redemption. Jesus' family tree in Matthew 1 includes prostitutes and pagans and even a Manasseh, and if you want to read about Manasseh, just read 1 Kings 21 before bedtime. Shocking how wicked King Manasseh is, and he's in Jesus' lineage. The Bible's teaching us that we're sin-increased, grace-increased all the more. Scotty Smith says, if the genealogy of Jesus comes in as a stinging rebuke to human pride, it can also come to us as a gentle solace to whatever we've experienced at the hands of human devastation and dysfunction. The story of Matthew's five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary are the stories of widowhood, second and third marriages, incest, prostitution, lying, murder, adultery, economic hardship, foreign exclusion, and geographic dislocation. It reminds us that nothing can separate us from God's love, and there's nothing of life's bitterness that cannot be woven into God's providential redemptive history for me. You see, the truth is that Jesus comes from this dysfunctional family line so when the angel says to Joseph Jesus you name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins this is also a look back at the first 17 verses it's a reference to look at the family tree Jesus doesn't come from a line of perfection at all and, and Matthew doesn't have to list any women in, in the genealogy and when he did list the women, he could have listed names like Sarah and Rebecca, nice Jewish names, in Jesus' family tree. But instead, he lists four that are all connected with sexual immorality. God redeems sexual sin. It's actually meant to give us hope. Tamar seduced her father-in-law she pretended to be a harlot. Rahab was a harlot, a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite, and the name Moab means from father. Lot's daughter slept with her dad to continue her family line in Genesis 19. It's very seedy. And Uriah's wife Bathsheba, she was married to Uriah the Hittite, and he was a Gentile. Many commentators believe that Bathsheba, and even some believe that why her name is not mentioned, is the shame of it. No Jewish woman would bathe in the middle of the day in the king's headquarters where he can look down on you. Many think that she was culpable trying to get the king's attention while her husband's off at war. We don't really know, but we know these names are listed, and there's sexual sin in all of them. You see, not only is there sexual sin, but we also see that they were Gentiles. Ruth and Rahab, clearly Gentiles, yet they're part of Jesus' family tree. So when it says he'll save his people from their sins, his people isn't just Jews. It's from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. There's rays of hope breaking through the clouds. Jesus' genealogy in these first 17 verses, it connects the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the very first verses of the New Testament. And in Matthew 1, it simply says, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew wants us to get without any doubt the connection and the continuity with the Old Testament. As I said last week, there were two massive promises in the Old Testament and they get repeated over and over and over again. And what were those two big promises? One was made to Abraham and one was made to David. And the one that's made to Abraham is through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I'll give you this land. But all the families of the earth are going to be blessed from, David, from Abraham's offspring. And the other one was, and these are both sworn with an oath. And this one's to David, that one of your descendants will be on the throne of David forever. So to reinforce these encouraging wor- words, as well as to verify Jesus' royal lineage, the angel addresses Joseph as son of David. Connecting the dots, even though he wasn't the real son of Joseph, Jesus, Jesus was his legal son. His royal right in the Davidic line came from Joseph, who's the son of David. So it's through Joseph, his adopting father, that Jesus receives the vital credentials for his mission. It's through Joseph, Jesus is counted the son of David. This would fulfill the ancient promise of 2 Samuel 7, and the promise that God made to Jeremiah, that behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Matthew's connecting the dots to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises in the Old Testament. You see, we get a break in the begots. This is point four. There's a break in the begots. Now, the ESV translates it as father. This is where I like the, the New King James, where there's 39 begots. And yet, in verse 15 and 16, you get a break in the begots. So look at the look at what it says here. I should have a slide, yeah. Iliad begot... Eliezer, Eliezer begot Mathon, Mathon begot Jacob, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. Do you see how it's carefully worded so that you know after hearing 39 begots that Jesus is not begot from Joseph? And twice we're told in this text that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, it's from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is wor- at work in Jesus' conception similar to how the Spirit of God was at work in creation. You remember the very first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without, void, without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. Well, here we're told that the Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary and she conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit. God did it supernaturally. As Matthew Henry said, the Holy Spirit who produced the world now produced the Savior of the world. The language of the Apostles' Creed is very important. We say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's a story, a true story that's told about C.S. Lewis, and he was sitting in his office one day, English department, and a friend of his who wasn't a believer wandered in, and there, there were carolers in the courtyard, and they were singing Christmas carols, and, and, and they are going back and forth, and the one unbelieving friend said to Lewis, isn't it good that we, knew be, that we know better than they did because they're singing about Jesus' virgin birth? And Lewis says, what do you mean? He said, well, isn't it good that we now know more than they did? And Lewis looks at him perplexed and says, I'm afraid you'll have to explain. He, and then so then he says, well, isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? And Lewis looked at him incredulously and said, don't you think they knew that? That's the whole point. <laughs> Some of you may have heard of Rob Bell. He was a pastor and writer and this was before John Piper's infamous tweet of three words, goodbye, Rob Bell, that, that rocked the tweeter world, where he wrote a book about discrediting, saying it wasn't a hell, and denied the propitiation work of Christ. And John Piper just wrote, goodbye, Rob Bell. And he was unbelievably correct in the goodbye, Rob Bell, from evangelicalism. But Rob Bell wrote, wrote years ago, some years ago before that, he had the audacity to say, um, he said, it wouldn't be such a big deal if we found out that Jesus had an earthly father named Larry. I mean, according to Bell, none of this would be catastrophic to the Christian faith. What if that spring, the virgin birth was seriously questioned? Could a person keep jumping? Could a person still love God? Could a person still be, could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Well, here's the problem. Kevin Young sums this up much better than me. <clears throat> this is what he says. Sinners beget sinners. Psalm 51.5, In sin my mother conceived me always. So if Joseph was the real father of Jesus, or Mary had been sleeping around with Larry, Jesus is not 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 innocent, and not perfectly holy. As a result, we have no mediator, no imputation of Christ's righteousness, because we have no righteousness to... There's no righteousness to impute to us, and there's no salvation. So yes, the virgin birth is essential. And the reflection quote, if you look at question 36, that's a profound quote from the Heidelberg Catechism, that your salvation is contingent on Jesus coming from an uncontaminated well. That his, we are born and conceived in sin. Jesus is not. Therefore, even his conception is part of my righteousness that covers me and gives me righteousness. G- Number five, Jesus is born of a virgin, so he's not contaminated with Adam's sinful nature. Just following the logic here. The significance of the virgin birth is, is our significance with Adam. You see, the little jingle is, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. This is how the Bible puts it. Here are a couple of verses. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death spread, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. David put it like this in Psalm 51. He's, he's confessing his sin of adultery, but he recognizes his sin goes so much deeper in that I was born in sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. He's not talking about his mother, like his mother sinned or something. He's just saying, I am, my very conception, I am stained with sin. The psalmist says, from the womb we speak lies. And Job says, for man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Our deepest problem in the universe is that we are connected to Adam. And that Adam's sin is imputed to us. His condemnation is ours and his death is ours. And so the shorter catechism puts it like this. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity. That's all who come from him. And all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation, that means everybody but Jesus, <laughs> descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We say, well, is that, is that a big deal? Well, let's just read a couple more questions and let's answer the question. Into what a state did the fall bring mankind? The fall brings mankind into a state of sin and misery. Well wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? Is that a big deal? Well, the sinfulness of that estate whereunto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want or the lack of original righteousness, the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, with all the actual transgressions which proceed from it. Well, is that a big deal? Well, what's the misery of that estate wherein two men fell? Well, all mankind by their fall, they lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, are made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. I think it's a big deal that Jesus came because otherwise we're in big trouble. You see, and God says he's gonna crush the serpent's head through the seed of the woman. It's the very first promise of the Bible. God says he's going to crush the serpent's head through the seed of the woman, but if the seed is contaminated by sin, how's he going to save us through the seed of the woman? Virgin birth. Check out this picture. You got this picture? I like this picture, but my wife looked at it, and she said, I don't agree with the theology completely of the picture, and I kind of, my wife had to correct me here. This is good. You see how the snake's wrapped around Eve? And the picture is, here is Mary now comforting Eve, I got this, and look where her foot is, it's crushing the serpent's head, but, you know, Kim was saying, it's Jesus that crushes the serpent's head, not the woman, but it's from the woman, so we get it, the idea is that God has come to undo the curse from the seed of the woman, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and he comes to give life through his sacrificial death. Now leave that picture up for a minute. Think about this. Jesus represents you much better than Adam ever did. Adam was never an infant, never a child, and probably never even a teenager. And Jesus was all of those. Jesus was born. Jesus has a genealogy. Jesus has a family tree. Jesus is a fully human. Jesus has a belly button. Okay? Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifests in the flesh. And Spurgeon put it like this, our Lord Jesus is in some senses more completely human than Adam ever was. Adam was not born, he was created as a man. Adam never had to struggle through the risks and weaknesses of infancy. He knew not the littlenesses of childhood. He was full grown at once. Father Abraham could not sympathize with me as a babe and a child, but how manlike is Jesus. He doesn't begin with us in midlife as Adam did, but he's cradled with us. He accompanies us in the pains and feebleness Feebleness and infirmities of infancy and he continues with us even to the grave. Number six, only God is a savior in the Bible and yet Jesus' mission and his name is to save his people from their sins. Now think about this. If in the Bible, only God saves. This is a clear reference to deity in verse 21. That his name shall be called Jesus which means Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. So six times alone in Isaiah and 13 other times in the Bible, we are told that Yahweh alone is Israel's savior. So Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. And Hosea thirteen four, yet I'm the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt and you shall know no God but me for there's no savior besides me. And then Mary herself in her confession In her song, and we'll read this tonight, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Jesus is a Savior. Well, only God is a Savior. Jesus is God. The virgin birth protects two important doctrines, the humanity of Jesus, but the deity of Jesus, that he's God and yet God taking on flesh. And he saves his people from their sins. Number seven, who gives you your name is a big deal in the Bible. Who gives Jesus his name? Tim Keller puts it like this, he says, in the Bible your name's your identity. The deeper deeper secret of who you are is locked up in your name. The naming event always has two aspects of the Bible. Number one, the source of your name and who gives it to you is extremely important because the one who names you is your superior. Naming is always the work and act of a superior. And so Adam named the animals because he was given superiority over them. But here we see that God names his son. And the angel's given the message. Here's who, how you, what you're to name him. But the parents didn't name him because Jesus Christ is not only a human being. His name is significant. He has two names here. It's the name Jesus and the name Emmanuel. His name is Jesus, number eight, because he will save his people from their sins. You see, our sins would crush us. The devil is armed with arrows as the accuser because of our sins. And because we are born in sin, then in reality we become enslaved to sin. And that's a bad thing. And that Matthew Henry says in his commentary on Matthew 121 that Christ came to save his people not in their sins, but from their sins, to purchase for them not a liberty to sin, but a liberty from sins to redeem them from all iniquity. Think about this. It doesn't say Jesus came to help you with your self-esteem. It doesn't say Jesus came to say, you're okay, I'm okay. Jesus didn't come to affirm your goodness. He came to save you from your badness. He came to save his people from their sins. So, Christmas is kind of scary. It's an indictment that God had to come down because we were so bad. We were so bad that he had to come because we could never go up. And he knew the only way to get to heaven was for him to come down. But the good news is, he came down. He didn't come to save us from hell, it says. He came to save us from sin. And because he saves us from sin, he saves us from hell. But that's an important distinction. A.W. Pink puts it like this. He says, that's why so many are so fatally deceived for there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from carnality and worldliness. He comes to save from sin, to, to save us from the bondage, to free us and to loose us from our sins in his own blood, the Bible says. He came. He came and put on a body to shed his blood for us. And now he's God with us. His name is Emmanuel. Once again, Matthew Henry says, by the light of nature we see a God as God above us and by the light of the law we see God against us but in the light of the gospel we see him as Emmanuel, God with us. He created the world yet he comes into the world. The whole point of the Bible, if you had to sum it up in one big theme, it's I'll be your God, you'll you'll be my people and I'll be with you. And we see at certain points where where God comes at the burning bush and he says to to Moses, and Moses is scared, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out out of Egypt? And what does God say? I'm with you. I'll be with you. The idea here is Emmanuel. And yet throughout Matthew's gospel, we see three times these three strong notes that Jesus is Emmanuel. We're told here in the beginning, he's Emmanuel. How's the book end? Lo, I am With you always, even to the end of the age, I'm with you. And then when when it comes to protecting and preserving his church and issues of church discipline, and when somebody has to be actually pushed out of the church because they profess to be a Christian, yet they won't turn away from their sinfulness, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in your midst, I'm with you. He saves his church, he saves his church, he preserves his church, and he grows his church because he's with us. And he's with us until the end of the age. Prelude to postlude. God is with us. God tabernacled with us. The word became flesh. What's interesting is where God would show up as God with us in the Old Testament would be where? Where would you say, where is God in the Old Testament? At the tabernacle, at the temple, in the Holy of Holies. You're only allowed to go in there once a year. And yet, the Bible tells us in Haggai, this is one of the minor prophets, and here, if you remember, when the people came back and they come back to, to Israel and they rebuild the temple, and they have the older people who remember the glory of the first temple, and they're they're weeping. They're weeping because it was so much smaller and less glorious than this new temple. And yet the newer people that never saw the first one, they're, they're all excited. We have a temple. You know, we can worship God, we'll be here. And Haggai tells us that here is the prophet. He says to the people right in the midst of this, that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. How can this be if this temple they're looking at is so much smaller than the first one? How's it gonna be greater? Well, the answer is in Jesus. Jesus comes along and says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And he says to the woman at the well, it's coming a day where you're not going to worship on that mountain or that, that mountain. You're going to worship in spirit and in truth. It's, not, it's through me. Jesus is the temple. He's the greater glory. It's his flesh that was torn, that we're told that was the real uh, veil, his flesh. And he leads us into the presence of God by being Emmanuel, God with us, who shed his blood for us. And lastly, in closing, this is from C.S. Lewis. He calls it one grand miracle. This is all miraculous. It's amazing. Something that God did, we didn't do it. He says, one, one is very often asked at present whether we could have a Christianity stripped, or as people who ask it say freed from its miraculous elements, a Christianity with their miraculous elements suppressed. Now it seems to me that precisely the one religion in the world, or at least the the only one I know, which you cannot do that with is Christianity. He says in a religion like Buddhism, if you take away the miracles attributed to Buddha and some very late sources, there'd be no loss. In fact, the religion would, would get on very much better without them because in this case, is the, the miracles largely contradict the teaching. Or even in a case of religion like Mohammedism or Islam, nothing essential would be altered if you took away the miracles. You could have a great prophet preaching his dogmas without bringing in any miracles. There's only in the nature of a digression or illuminated capitals, but you can't possibly do that with Christianity because the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, that which is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It's precisely one great miracle. And If you take away that, there's nothing specifically Christian left And Lewis pictures it as a diver. He says, picture a diver stripping off garment after garment making himself naked, then flashing for a moment into the air and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water into the pitch black, cold, freezing water, down into the mud and slime, and there up again, his lungs almost bursting back again to the green and warm and sunlit water and then at last out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. This thing is human nature, but associated with its nature is the new universe." This is why I call this grand miracle. It's the missing chapter in the novel, the chapter on which the whole plot turns. That's why I believe that God has really dived down into the bottom of creation and has come up bringing the whole redeemed nature on his shoulder. That's what God did. That's why Christmas is so important. John Calvin put it like this in closing. He said, And Jesus' becoming son of man with us. He has made us sons of God with him. By his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us, that by taking on our mortality, he has confirmed his immortality upon us, that accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power, that by receiving our poverty unto himself, he's transferred his wealth to us, that by taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, He has clothed us with his righteousness. How about you this morning? Have you been saved from your sins? Jesus came on a mission to save his people from their sins. The way you cross over from death to life is real simple. It's believing in the one whom he has sent. It's believing in Christ as the son of God and savior of sinners and resting and receiving him as he's offered in the gospel. That's one of our membership questions. Make it your own and live for him. Let's pray. How we thank you, Lord. Light has broken into darkness. And in our poverty, you have come to make us rich. Thank you for taking our nature to yourself forever. And we will see you with our eyes. We will see a glorified human body. Our Lord Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that you are coming again. We thank you that you have broken through once into this world and you'll do it again. And Lord, as we wait upon you, we pray that we'd make much of you and that we'd connect our little story and all the difficult things that happened to us in this journey. May we live for you and look for you in the midst of all the, the difficulties that we face. May, you give, may we give you the glory in the good things. And may we accept from your hand the difficult things, knowing that this life is short and that our hope is forever secure. Strengthen your people. We thank you you came to save us for it's in your name. Amen.